Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash, is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. More and more, especially since putting out this novel, I've come to terms with the fact that this idea of home is going to be more of an emotional and a psychic idea. Um, for me, I may never have the luxury of claiming an entire country or even an entire city as a place where I feel completely at home. Um, I think that home is as sappy as it sounds. It is people. It's, you know, individual living rooms of friends. It's communities, um, maybe internet communities of people who just like get what I get and have had similar lived experiences. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. The last year has been rough for everybody. People have been dealing with isolation, anxiety, grief, so much more. And even though our circumstances are beginning to shift a little bit, there's still a lot to process. 
Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code THRESHOLDS to get $100 off your first month and to show your support for the show. That's Thresholds and Talkspace.com. One of my favorite books from 2020 was a novel called How Much of These Hills is Gold by C. Pam Zhang. It's a debut novel, um, and it follows a family of Chinese immigrants in California during the gold rush. The father is a struggling prospector, and after he and his wife die, their two children, an older sister, Lucy, and a younger sibling named Sam, have to figure out together how to survive in the terrain, the wild terrain and the social terrain of California in that time. They have to figure out where they'll fit and how they'll fit and where and how they'll be safe and where home might be and who they are. It's just mythic and epic in its proportions. It's gorgeously written. And it's a story of that time and place that centers people, in this case, Chinese immigrants, who are often written out of the popular mythology of that era. It was deservedly long-listed for the Booker Prize, and Pam was named a 5 under 35 honoree by the National Book Foundation. She came to talk about how this book came about, a journey that began with an acid trip. Hope you enjoy. So I'm going to start by telling an acid trip story, which is sort of, I know, inherently the worst genre of story, but I'm going to take a stab at it. Um, so this was maybe 2014 or 2015, and I'd been out of college um, for three or four years. And I had been working for the entire time at one of those really evangelical tech startups in San Francisco. Um, you know, tech startups were not a thing I had grown up wanting to do, but they were a place that accepted me with my you know, English degree from a liberal arts university. And I was trying really, really hard to do anything but write. Um, you know, my whole life growing up, I had been infused with this idea of upward mobility and, you know, being the child of immigrant parents that often felt like my entire job, my entire life's job was to make good on everything they had sacrificed to come here. So I was like, okay, tech, cool, why not? You know, there's like drinking, there's um, office hangouts, why not? I can sort of tunnel into this life. Um, and so sort of at the peak of this, I went on an acid trip with um, a couple of my coworkers slash friends. And, you know, we were doing it in the middle of Golden Gate Park. It was this beautiful day. It was gorgeous. Like the grass was blowing. We were walking up this slope and I look up and in the middle of this idyllic sort of like all American canvas, I suddenly realized that all my coworkers are blonde and blue eyes. And, you know, I had hit that portion of the acid trip where you're experiencing ego death, right? Where your sort of like sense of self kind of dissolves and you feel at one with the things around you. And I had this moment where I was terrified because I lost myself. I was like, am I blonde and blue eyed? Who am I? Um, and so for the remainder of this acid trip, as my identity came back to me, it came in these waves of just like horror. Um, first of all, that I had 
so easily been able to lose my sense of myself. And second, that I kind of, I think I enjoyed it or realized that this was something sort of rising up from my subconscious, that maybe this is something I had always subconsciously wanted my whole life, right, to completely disappear into whiteness. Um, and it it really shook me. Like, I know acid trip revelations are such a cliche, but it really frightened me and shook me. Um, and, you know, it wasn't the only thing. There were several things happening around this period. For example, I had just become really good friends with um, this Thai American writer, a very dear friend of mine, who was sort of probing me um, in our conversations to think about whiteness and the centrality of whiteness in, in my writing and my reading lives as well. But yeah, this, this acid trip, it was, it was something else. It stuck with me for weeks. And I think what was most jarring on that particular day was, you know, uh, after we were all done with the trip, we sort of like uh, congregated in one of my coworkers' houses and people were smoking weed and we were like eating chips from the corner store and everybody else's experience was like, that was so fun. That was so great. Aren't you having a lot of fun? And I was just like, I feel so uncomfortable in my body. Um, and I think it was it was a rare occasion for me where I voiced that discomfort and I sort of tried to explain the the alienating experience I'd had, but it sort of hit, you know, it hit a wall um, with these white coworkers. And I don't know, just like all my life, I think I've been taught to not make waves, to make situations pleasant. And if I had any sort of conflicting thoughts to kind of shove them down and keep going. And this is a time when I vocalize them and for whatever reason, on that particular day, um, the discomfort of my audience didn't stop me from talking about it. And it didn't stop me from going home. And yes, definitely thinking about this over weeks and months. What did that lead to for you? Like, did you, did you, <laughs> you know, how, what did you do with that? I mean, that's, that's such a difficult thing to be grappling with and a difficult thing to be wondering about. Um, what, did did th did anything like change for you? What did you do with that? I think to answer that question, I have to sort of unwind a few years. Um, so I, well, first of all, when I first started writing, which I've done all my life, I was writing a lot of fan fiction in high school, right? And it was the stuff that I really, really, really enjoyed. Um, and then once I went to my Ivy League university and started taking these English classes, you know, I was suddenly thrust into this realm of you know, literary fiction, capital L, capital F. And I was taking these uh, these creative writing courses for the first time where we were reading Cheever and we were reading Carver and holding them up as, um, you know, the paragon of short story form. And suddenly I was like, oh no, the things I was writing before for my own enjoyment, they weren't sort of real or valid. Um, this is what writing is supposed to look like. And so, I call this stage of my literary education the bad imitation white man story stage, um, <laughs> where I I wrote suddenly all I was writing was these like suburban upper middle class stories about sad people that had no relationship to my life, right? Like I was writing about dinner parties, like my parents didn't have dinner parties. I'd never been to a dinner party in my life, but suddenly I was writing about them. And I was writing about like assistant professors and I was writing about people going to farmer's markets. Um, and, you know, like some of these stories won like minor awards and I got praise for them. 
Um, but I was really uncomfortable with them. And one of the, the things that I was doing that I was tricking myself into doing was that I refused to name the race of any of the characters in my story. So I sort of took the stance where I was like, well, in my head, this girl is Chinese American or Japanese American. But if I just don't put that out there, if I just say, you know, her hair was black, um, anyone can read an alternate race onto this character. And, you know, I was just trying to sidestep the whole fact that systemically we assume whiteness of characters because that's what's prevalent in the publishing industry. And this was sort of like the stubborn stance that I took forward into all my writing. I was like, if I don't write about race, I can make it vanish from the world of my fiction. Um, and I think it was it was really this moment in the acid trip where I was like, no, <laughs> unfortunately, whiteness in America is the sort of water that we swim in. And I can't pretend it doesn't exist because I'm doing harm to to my own work and to my my own self. I mean, that sounds like it was a very, very must have been a sort of a tough thing to come to a realization of. But but it sounds like you found the way you wanted to write more after that. Yeah. Um, I realized it was really important to center my own experiences in my identity. And it was important to not feel ashamed about that. You know, I think that almost every um, Asian American writer probably goes through this stage where you hate on Amy Tan. <laughs> As you know, <laughs> I just I had, I went through the stage myself and in fact saw like a you know a byline by an Asian American journalist in the New York Times who did this um, and I was just like you know what it is is we all go through the stage where you feel ashamed of being Asian right you just like don't want anybody to think of that at the forefront of your identity and so you sort of trample upon the Amy Pans of the world who are so naked in their exploration of it, right? And you really think that because you're you're the first, you're so revolutionary um, and you're so unlike every other Asian American writer that you can be the one to sort of shrug off the facts of your identity um, and sort of like break new ground where, and really I think that just comes from a place of deep, deep shame. Like, you know, there it's really important for us to, to claim our identity as one of richness and depth not one that is narrow, not one that puts us into a box, because the idea of that identity being like a tiny niche box is, um, you know, an idea that comes from from whiteness. Yeah. I mean, and that definitely feels that that gesture, that idea, that intellectual and artistic work definitely feels really at the center of your book, um, of creating, of putting um Chinese immigrants at the center of a story that in America, we often do not, you know, America has often not placed Chinese immigrants or even just anyone who's not white at the center of stories about the West and the gold rush. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that gesture and the, the exploration of these people's lives and their histories and their progressions um, feels really grounded in, in what you're talking about. When did you, you know, in relation to the acid trip, when did you <laughs> have have this idea for this book? Yeah, so I think it was maybe 
a year or so after this acid trip that um, I guess another threshold moment came when I was laid off from this tech startup. And, you know, it wasn't actually a surprise because I think what I had begun to realize after the trip was that I didn't want to spend my entire life laboring for this company. I didn't want to spend my entire life pretending to fit into this this sort of corporate culture where I knew I wasn't happy, even though I was like making money and I have all these creature comforts. Um, And so between the acid trip and my being laid off, I was frankly like slacking off, right? It was withdrawing. Um, I became part-time. I was like really trying to work on a novel manuscript. And so, and I was like refusing (laughs) these duties that my manager tried to give me. And so by the time they laid me off, it was kind of a long time coming. Um, And I think that I've always had a hard time, you know, like letting things go myself. I sort of like push it (laughs) until it reaches a breaking point um, that's out of my control. But anyway, so literally the day that I got laid off, um, which I think is usually a traumatic day for people, I was just, I was laughing and I made plans that exact same day um, to move to Bangkok, Thailand. I had been bouncing around this idea for for, for the past year um, of, you know, really taking a year out of my life to devote all my faculties to writing and sort of like testing out the idea. If, if I had all the time in the world, would I write? Um, and that same Thai American writer friend had independently decided to move back to Bangkok. And I was texting him about being laid off and he was like, I could use a roommate. So, so that's what I did <laughs> on the exact same day that I was laid off. I made plans to move to Bangkok and write. Um, and it was, it was just, it was incredibly liberating. And, you know, I, I'm always wary of talking about this in the like sort of disgusting colonialist, like eat, pray, love way where I understand, <laughs> you know, all the privileges I had coming from America and then moving to a quote unquote developing country. Um, but one of the really transformative parts of that experience for me was, you know, even though I'm ethnically, ethnically Chinese and I moved to Thailand, there are a lot of um, ethnic Chinese in Thailand. And it was my first time living in a, a major Asian metropolis as an adult. And it was the first time I experienced the feeling of being able to walk around on the streets and feel invisible not feel notable for the way that I stood out from the crowd, not be conscious of the way people's gazes fell on me in the way that they did in America. Um, and that that invisibility and the comfort of that invisibility were so quietly revolutionary to me. Um, and I think, you know, in the same way that James Baldwin felt that he was only able to look back on America and write about experiences of being Black there from the perspective of being pulled out of America and living in Paris. I think I had a little bit of that when I lived in Bangkok as well. Um, I had this distance with which I could sort of more, more objectively look at all these notions of the American dream, um, of capitalism, of productivity, of belonging that were just painful and really hard to look at when I lived in America. How how long were you there? Were you there for a whole year? I was there for almost a year. Um, I was there for about nine months. And then I got into an MFA program in the States. And I left 
Thailand to attend that. Was it hard? Was it hard to leave? Was it hard to come back to the States? Huh, that's an interesting question. Actually, I've actually never thought about that before. Um, yes and no. I think that because I was leaving for an F- MFA program, I had this like hunger and excitement. Um, like I was more excited than I was sort of anxious about leaving the comforts of Thailand. But at the same time, you know, the year I came back, the very first semester at my MFA program was also when Donald Trump got elected, right? Mm. So it was really like everything came crashing down. Like, you know, I had, so by the time I moved back to the States, I had already completed the first draft of How Much of These Hills is Gold, my novel manuscript. Um, And I remember that when I was finishing it in Thailand, when I looked back on what I had produced, I had this moment where I was afraid that I had over-exaggerated, right? Like there's so much naked violence and anti-Asian racism in my novel. And I was like worried that people would read it as histrionic or unbelievable or just kind of campy, right? Um, And then lo and behold, I moved back to the States. Trump is elected into office. And then four years later, when my my novel came out this past year, we saw this huge rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. And it was just a reminder that yeah, those sort of currents that I always perceived um, running beneath the foundation of of American culture, they've always been there. I wasn't imagining them in that distance that um, I was permitted when I lived in Thailand. It did help me see them more clearly. This novel started out as a short story, and like all my short stories, it just like came out of my subconscious. So I usually wake up um, with an image or a first line or a couple of characters in mind whenever I begin a short story. And that was the case with this. I just woke up and I had this image of dry hills and searing heat and these two children on the run so the two children at the you know the two siblings at the heart of my novel really came to me fully formed um as a pair and it was really only in the process of writing it that I realized that I was kind of writing this reimagined fever dream version of the California landscape that I had just left um and you know, I think my my novel is labeled as historical fiction, but I'm wary of that label because to me it's it's a it's a reimagining of history, and if anything, it's a creation of a new myth. Um, that's how I see it. And as with myths and fairy tales, I think one of their powers is that because of their strange like liminal space, um, it's much easier to project your own experiences onto those myths, right? Even if you weren't literally, you know, like dragging dead bodies across an 1800s Western landscape. Um, those characters and that family, they became these vessels for, for the dramatic feelings of loneliness and alienation um, and movement that I experienced as an immigrant kid, even though my own lived day-to-day experience was, you know, much more sort of ordinary and mundane. 
Um, so yeah, I think they were they were sort of like dragged out of the subconscious of of everything I had experienced as a kid living up living in America. Yeah, something I I noticed about the book was the way that these characters, um, especially Lucy, but I re- it really seems like all the characters um, are kind of questing after home or mm-hmm. uh, or belonging as this destination um that might be um you know like that as if they could just you know get to the right place there will be some relief from what they're experiencing mm-hmm. um and i i wanted to i guess i wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that idea of home or belonging or rest or you know, safety as this, as this horizon that sort of continually vanishes in front of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the way you put that. It's also so, it's so sad. Um, yeah, I think I, you know, I was born in Beijing and I actually did not become an American citizen until I was, I think, 15 or 16, because my, my mom had finally been in the States long enough that she could be naturalized. And as her child, I was just a automatically naturalized along with her um and I think for a a fairly significant chunk of my childhood I identified with the Chinese part more than the American part right and because one that's what was said on my passport but also you know again you're you're constantly labeled as Chinese in America no matter whether you were born here, how many generations your family has been here. It's just the assumption people make of you. Um, And so after I gained citizenship, it was just this constant vibrational confusion that I held within me about like, who do I, what do I claim as my culture? Who do I claim affinity to? How can I ever reconcile these, these questions? Um, And in some ways, I still don't fully know the answer. Um, I think in some ways I am still looking for that sense of home because, you know, like it was wonderful to be in Thailand and to feel invisible and held. But also I didn't speak the language and I knew that I was a foreigner. I didn't understand Thai culture. That wasn't my place. Um, and I certainly have no grasp of modern Chinese culture. Um but I'm always going to get called out for for looking Chinese in America. So I don't really know where that physical place is. I think that more and more, especially since putting out this novel, I've come to terms with the fact that this idea of home is going to be more of an emotional and a psychic idea. Um, For me, I may never have the luxury of claiming an entire country or even an entire city as a place where I feel completely at home. Um, I think that home is as sappy as it sounds. It is people. It's you know individual living rooms of friends. It's communities, um, maybe internet communities of people who just like get what I get and have had similar lived experiences. Um, I feel like I'm not articulating it well, but I think it's just like in some ways, like especially you know zooming out a little bit in our increasingly globalized and multiracial. Uh, world, I think that it's a question that more and more people grapple with 
there is also the sense that the world itself is just changing faster, right? It feels like every couple of years, the world sheds its skin. It's like the things you thought were true five years ago and that you thought would be true for 25 years. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's not the case anymore. Myths we think of as these these things that are, you know, that persist even as the world changes around them. Um, they are, they're like old, they're ancient mm -hmm. and they are, and, and they're kind of, um, I don't know, maybe we can reinterpret them differently, but the, the myths wind up being sort of having a longer arc than the world around them. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm curious about your interest in like entering this this big archetypal narrative genre um during a period of such intense you know like the trump administration such intense fast change in the world and in your life it sounds like you you know you, you moved to thailand you left your job you know um it was i don't know what is the question i'm trying to ask <laughs> i'm <laughs> i'm curious that just seems like a um an interesting like point of tension to me, this idea of wanting to write a, a big mythic story um, about the past um, while the present is is a little bit chaotic. Right, right. The past, but also the present, right? And I think that's, that's the beauty of this, that they continue to have this resonance. So, um, you know, I sort of like, I planted my stake in this mythology of the American West. Um, and I'm just going to put an asterisk here and say that I think over the course of writing this book and talking about this book, I've used the words mythology and history much more sort of loosely and broadly um, than most people use them, because I think there is actually a huge, a great deal of overlap between the two ideas, right? Um, I think that one of the things I worked through while, while writing this book was the fact that history is not a collection of objective facts. Um, it's not static. It itself is a series of narratives created by people in power. Um, you know, for example, the the cowboy era of the American West has such a huge presence in the American cultural imagination, but actually that period only lasted for like 20 years, which you would never think um, if you saw like how, how much that genre has, um, you know, sort of leaked through through our culture. Anyway, so um, that's just to say that I was writing this novel about the gold rush, a period of the 1800s. But at the same time, I had just been working in tech. And I was thinking a lot about how the tech boom on the West Coast is just the most updated form of the gold rush, right? It's all these people rushing to the coast with this idea that they can make a fortune in like a year or a matter of years, right? That they will be the ones to beat the odds um, and come out millionaires and billionaires. And that there's just all this opportunity lying around waiting for anybody to grasp it. Um, but just like the gold rush, right? That idea of equal opportunity for all is a mirage, it's an illusion. Um, there is so much systemic racism and sexism in the tech industry, just as there was in the original gold rush. And so I, I think a lot about how this, these myths of our culture continue to bubble up and sort of have the same toxic effects, you know, generation after generation, many hundreds of years apart. 
Um, and so I, yeah, I think I was just really interested in that, exploring that because it felt, it did feel timeless to me. Um, and there was a little bit of a feeling of sort of defiance in me too, as I worked on this novel, I was like, well, okay, if our culture is going to be so perpetually obsessed with the mythology of the swaggering cowboy and the American West, and we're just going to, you know, devote a disproportionate amount of attention to it, then I'm going to slide into this. I'm going to, you know, plant my flag in the ground. I'm going to make you look at this family of Chinese immigrants um, in this time, and I'm going to center myself in this mythology. To me, the character of Sam was uh, so compelling because Sam is this um, this person for whom th- all of the ethos of the cowboy seems like of paramount importance, right? But mm-hmm. Sam was not necessarily born to be a cowboy, right? Like Sam was born as uh, a daughter. Um, and yet Sam wants to become a cowboy. Um, and it felt like this really, and, and Sam is a cowboy, doesn't like want to mm-hmm. become a cowboy. Sam sort of like is that, um, has that, all of those traits. Um, and the idea of that identity, that ethos, that like very American, you know, rugged, you know, that archetype um, being one that is embodied by somebody who has to, who chooses it, who chooses to assume it, um, you know, even though, even though Sam might not be the most, you know, might not be like born to be um, what someone would think to be a cowboy, um, felt really exciting to me to read. It felt like a really interesting way to, um, to examine the ethos of the cowboy, you know, to have this character who, who puts it on, not because, not as a disguise, but as, as a real lived identity, but one that had to be chosen. Yeah. I mean, Sam gets the swagger. (laughs) And I think that I just, I just want to write these mythologies where people who weren't allowed to swagger get to swagger. Um, (laughs) You know, it's like, there are many levels, right? Like, obviously it was important to me as I was working on this book to think about this message that it sends to have this kid who is what we would today call non-binary or gender fluid or trans um, be able to live with this kind of freedom and confidence. But on another level, it's just like really, really fun, right? It's really, really fun to write somebody else into these cowboy boots. Yeah. And it looks so, the the swagger um, that Sam gets to have feels so satisfying and yet also feels um, like you you can sense the extent to which the ways that Sam and and the father character embody masculinity is also a, a complicated and difficult thing too. You know, it's not purely glamorous swagger. There's like real joy to it, but also real violence to it and real pain to it. Um, and all of that felt so, I, I don't know, that felt really interestingly, beautifully rendered. Um, can you just tell me a little bit more about um, why why Sam or what felt, you know, like what felt, um, how you thought about that character as you were working on the book? When it comes to 
Sam, I think a lot about how writing a book and writing a particular character can sort of make you braver as a writer. Um, you know, there are parts of myself and probably every one of the family members in this book, but I think the biggest part of myself as a child is seen in the character of Lucy, right? Because she's this character who grows up deeply believing that institutions will save her, um, that assimilation into whiteness will save her, that being pleasant and nice smelling um, and obedient will save her. Uh, and then Sam is the opposite of Lucy in many ways, where Sam sees the sort of rules and constraints of the society laid out in front of them, but Sam decides that they will sort of step over and around them and make their own rules of the world. And so at the same time that I wanted the reader to be able to admire that, that in Sam um, and to enjoy the ways in which Sam sort of tramples all over all over these rules of the world. You know, something I, I hate about our modern way of talking about sort of um, icons for marginalized populations is we talk about them as sort of courageous or brave. And I think that's the kind of moral shrugging off um, of what we as a culture owe them, right? They shouldn't have to be, a trans kid today shouldn't have to be brave. They shouldn't have to, you know, stand on a giant platform and receive all this hate speech and then be articulate in response. That's, that's not okay, right? And I think calling them brave or courageous takes some of that burden off of the culture at large. Um, and so it was important to me to show that as brave and cool and fun and swaggering as Sam is, right, they can't completely escape everything that's happening around them. So um, while Sam is sort of, I think, psychically and emotionally, much more at peace with themselves um, than Lucy is, for example, Sam is also in much greater physical and real danger than Lucy is, right? That is the cost um, of moving through the world as, as this outspoken person. Um, and it was really important to me to, to show that cost. You, were, you started by saying that like sometimes writing a character can make you a, I don't know if you said a better writer or a different kind of writer. How, like, in what way do you feel changed by having written Sam? Yeah, I think it's it's just so much easier um, to write these characters where, you know, with fiction, you often don't know what the hell you're saying <laughs> the first time. <laughs> you're just like creating a character, trying to embody that character emotionally and sort of like being surprised by what they do on the page. Um, and Sam is so outspoken that I think they gave me license to be more outspoken about about myself, about my own work, and to claim space, right? Like, I think that it was definitely a process, um, even to talk as sort of, frankly, as I now talk about wanting to write a great American epic, right? Wanting to write something that is going to be part of the canon of the American West. Um, I wouldn't have dared say that when I was drafting it. It took a lot of talking through, you know, the very brilliant and supportive people on my on my publicity team to get to that place. And even today, a year after the book has been out, I I am much more able to talk about that as well. Um, you know, I think that I realized over the course of writing about Sam and about Lucy and about and of sort of meeting readers virtually along this book's life that I 
in many ways wrote this book for myself as a young girl, right? As a young girl who, like Lucy, wanted so desperately to fit in, but also who, like Sam, um, had these this hidden turmoil in this inner life that I, I as a young kid, was afraid to make large. Um, and I think it's been it's been so inspiring for me to see how readers, but especially you know, Asian American women and non-binary and trans readers have responded to this book. Um, and and I think like all those voices, the voice of Sam, the voice of those readers has made me, has made me braver. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.